The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. If you were waiting for the Pacific Division to be over, congratulations. Last week is done. This week is just beginning. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. It's your Monday edition, afternoon style again, as we bounce around the actual release time on these pods. And it's time for us to embark upon the Northwest Division. And as usual, I haven't made a plan as to which team is going which day until after I hit the record button on a podcast. It's all feel, folks. It's all feel. Of course, we got all the stats laid out for everybody, so I could flip in any direction I wanted to, but I don't know. Making a plan in advance in a quarantine? Who cares? Plus, I finally got a chance to watch Parasite over a handful of very short installments, and uh, making a plan, I believe, was described as... Well, I can't say that word on a podcast. I am Dan Vespers, at Dan Vespers on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Fantasy NBA Today is a hoop ball presentation. Still good stuff happening over at Hoop Ball, even during the quarantine. They have the season so far breakdowns, which fittingly today is the Chicago Bulls. Our buddy Steve Vidovich breaking down the Bulls, who have a new VP and no general manager because Gar Foreman was officially let go earlier today and Bulls Twitter was so thrilled. I mean, I, I honestly don't know what Bulls Twitter is going to do with themselves. I guess they could go after uh, Paxson now, but they that the Gar Pax is no more because the Gar part is gone. And effectively, at least or so it seems from the reporting so far, that whole regime, whatever's left of it, has basically been neutered at this point. Arturis Karsanovas is the new executive VP of basketball operations for the Chicago Bulls. He's there to shake things up. He has already said that he wants to play at a better pace. So what does that mean for Jim Boylan? You can find all of that in the article from Steve Vidovich and at the Hoopball Bulls podcast. Greg Mraz had an episode come out today. He's going to have another one middle of this week on the firing of Gar Foreman. And it's great. That's all that really needs to be said about that podcast. It's great. Greg Mraz is a fellow uh, minor league baseball broadcaster emeritus like myself, like Brandon Marcus here at Hoopball. I'm collecting MILB broadcasters at this point. So you know the quality is going to be outstanding because all of us, all we minor league broadcasters or former, we had to learn how to self-engineer 140 games a season. So a podcast, psh, drop in the bucket. You can follow the Hoopball Bulls Twitter feed at Hoopball Bulls. You can follow Greg at Greg D as in dog. Moroz, M-R-O-Z. Greg D. Moraz. It's a fantastic podcast. He's very, very good at what he does. And there's a lot of content over there on the Bulls because they're one of the only teams in the NBA with stuff happening right now. Other news from over the weekend, uh, not much. Uh, Hoopball also had a New York Knicks breakdown from over the weekend. Uh, if that, If you're into that. 
Our guy Surio did a waiver wire pickup of the year column over the weekend. So there's still stuff. That's the thing. Like we're we're still chugging out some measure of content here at Hoopal. I hope you guys have an opportunity to check some of that out. Also, it was reported first thing this morning, I believe, that the NBA is looking at effectively a 25-day ramp-up toward games, whenever that might be. Now, I don't want people to misinterpret this news because it doesn't mean that they're starting today. It's not, hey, April 13th, 25 days from now, that's when things will begin. No, because they still haven't opened up team activities in any capacity. But the the plan is that once things are safe to begin, and you have to really wait until you can get stuff going, there's going to be a bunch of virtual stuff. Players are going to be doing individual workouts to try to get their conditioning back up. Then there'll be group workouts, team workouts, full practices and then games so that's the that's the three and a half week plan back to games beginning now whenever that is that could be a month two months we heard adam silver say that he would like the nba season basically to be done in any capacity whether that's you know starting and ending with the playoffs or playoffs plus some regular season games by labor day which is the first week in september and it gives us, I think, a little bit of, of calm because that's five months from now. We're still, we're mid-April. You could almost call it early April because we haven't hit the middle of the month quite yet. 30 day in the month, we're a couple days away from that point. So you're talking about, what is Labor Day this year? I think it's September 7th. So you're just a hair under five months, a week under it. That's a lot of time. You know, it's not half a year. But it's almost 150 days to be done with whatever the NBA needs. Now, if they ran the playoffs in the normal course, that's about two months long. So that would mean they'd want the playoffs going by the first week of July. I still think that the NBA could shave off a number of days of playoff BS, especially come conference finals and actual finals, because... Each round takes the same amount of time, even though the first round, you've got 16 teams going, so eight different series happening. Then you got four different, and then two different and one, and one series. And so, in the beginning, teams are bouncing around, the travel time is less, but there's so many games happening that they've got two, three games on every day. By the conference finals... Sometime, if you're lucky, there's one game on every other day. And in the finals, during the travel portion, there were two days off. I, I legitimately couldn't even keep track of what was happening in the finals. There was so much time off. It was game, day off, game. So it was like Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, Monday again, Thursday, and then we're into bouncing back and forth at that point. So it was like two days off between each of those last few games. The finals themselves were going to take two and a half weeks. There's just no reason why seven games should take two and a half weeks. That's averaging less than three games a week. That's nothing. Get it up to three games a week. Make it three and a half games a week. You knock that thing down. Make every series a maximum of two weeks long. Eight-week finals. That's about a week. You shave a week off of that two-month estimate. It's that easy. 
I mean, you could do it in just the last two rounds combined, or you do it earlier on. I don't care, but it's pretty simple to shave a week off there or even a week and a half. That buys you until mid-July to get the playoffs started. And so if you want to have any regular season games, you could potentially do that by the beginning of the month. And then if you want this 25-day ramp-up, that would probably have to start in June. So that's your NBA timeline update for the start of the week. From a team-by-team perspective, the Bulls were really the only club with noise happening at all over the last, uh, like, two weeks, basically. And so we chug along. In quarantine, being extra careful, not taking any chances because things are in, uh, well, a lot of places actually showing signs of improvement. I tweeted this out, but I'll, I'll put it out there on the, the podcast as well. Um, I happen to be somewhat piped in with the doctor community, happen to be married to one, and then family members, friends, etc., work in different hospitals across Los Angeles. A lot of hospitals send their staff little memos every day, every couple of days on really just how the the hospital is doing in terms of uh, beds and resources and COVID cases. And right now, they're actually steady or coming down in a lot of places, which is anecdotal to some degree. But again, when you hear it from a number of different places, different hospitals, different hospitals in, that have different sort of clientele financially, that's a really good sign. And I mentioned it last week on this podcast that this week was the week where you should effectively start to see, you see kind of the, unfortunately, you see the peak number of deaths per day, which is extremely uh, upsetting. But that also means that you're kind of at the end. It corresponds, I should say, with that last day before measures were put in place. And the Bay Area put measures in place right after the NBA was suspended. California, writ large, put measures in place a couple days after that. So we're just a couple days away from seeing what would likely be the the maximum death number per day. Uh, And then you should start to see things that come down. So hopefully every other place is just a, a hair behind us. We are in pretty good shape in California. And I continue to to hope that everyone else can be as well. On the... Sad front, because we can't make everything optimistic on this podcast. The news did come out on Monday morning uh, that Jackie Towns, Jacqueline, uh, Carl Anthony Towns' mother, passed away from the coronavirus. Extremely upsetting report. Um, Many of us know people that have either had it or have passed away from it. And this one is one that sort of slides into the category of of well-known people that have now been severely impacted by it. We knew last week that she had been placed into a coma, hoping that the the various tools the hospital could keep her going long enough for her body to fight it off. Turns out that uh, that did not happen. And so a very sad day for the NBA community and for the town's family. And, and certainly all of us here at Hoopball are thinking about them and sending whatever thoughts you can. It's just, it's heartbreaking. You know, I, I wish that I could say, that I, I fully understand. I don't because as a situation where a family member is extremely sick and they can't be visited, you can't be with them. Although to some degree, I have lost a family member, a parent, abruptly in my life. And so there is that method and you just, you know, it, it, it chews you up for a very, very long time. 
Let's talk about the first team in the Northwest Division as we begin our tour of the second division here on Fantasy NBA Today, and that team is, Dan rolls a five-sided die, the Portland Trailblazers. Why not? The Northwest Division actually has a handful of teams that are relatively straightforward to break down, but as usual, it's all about lessons we can learn as we explore some of the fantasy numbers from these teams. I thought we took some good ones away from the, t the Pacific Division, and we'll try to do likewise here in the Northwest. First things first, we'll work our way down the chart. Number one on the Portland Trailblazers was almost Hassan Whiteside, but not quite. Damian Lillard, the sixth-ranked player in fantasy sports this season, a robust campaign that saw Dame shoot 45.5% from the field, 89% high-volume number at the free-throw line. His other stuff was outstanding as well. 29 points per game for Lillard, uh, almost four three-pointers per game. That's a career high. The scoring, by the way, was also a career high. Right around his normal uh, defensive stat number, about 1.4 combined per game. Turnovers were pretty close to his career mark. Assists, a career high as well, 78 on that ledger, rebounds right at his career mark. Everything with Dame this year was what you hoped for. And then some. He was better in almost every category that you thought, is there any way he could squeeze a little bit more out of this one? And the answer this season was yes. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that the team was decimated by injuries. Yusuf Nurkic missed the entire season, which we knew was coming, so that wasn't a surprise. C.J. McCollum was largely there and playing this year, so it wasn't that. But for Dame, he just got more efficient. He hit more of his three-pointers. He took more of them, but it didn't really kill his field goal percent. He got better at two-pointers. His, his three-point percentage was tied for the highest mark of any season in his career. Free-throw shooting is always great. Maybe a little bit lower, but you know, not a marked difference between uh, 91 last year and 89 this season. Uh, highest free throw total on a per game basis, his highest usage this year, largest number of field goals made per game, field goal attempts was a career high, and his assists were about one higher than any season before. You almost, I mean, you look at it and you're like, how could he squeeze something else out? And then he did it. Now, the beauty of Damian Lillard, and, and a lot, uh, you know, a lot of folks would like to crow about a win on Dame, but I think we all had the same general idea with Lillard, and that is he's going to play as often as humanly possible. He played in 58 of Portland's games so far this year, out of, I think, 67, if I'm not mistaken, the team. No, sorry, 65 games the team had so far. So he did miss a handful with the groin deal uh, going into the All-Star break and then a couple weeks coming out of it. But you know he's always going to play anytime he can, and the reason you drafted him largely in that he generally went right behind Jokic, so in that seven or eight slot in most drafts was, hey, look, we don't expect him to be the number seven or eight per game guy, but he's probably going to play 75 games or more, and that's going to give you the peace of mind with a guy like Dame to throw him out there. He's, his entire career has been built on the fact that he really just doesn't miss time. Played all 82 games his first three seasons, 75, 75, 73, 80 last year, and then... 58 and was basically on pace to be in the mid-70s again this season. If he played the rest of their games, he'd be right around 75. Presumably, he'd miss a couple in there, call it another 73, something like that. And then he went and he exceeded expectations on the per-game note. So 
This one is a little bit of good fortune, but also we talk about when you make these picks early, you take guys that aren't going to ruin your team. Even if Damian Lillard hadn't been this good, even if he perfectly replicated last year at 26, 7, and three three-pointers and put himself around the turn effectively, I, be, I believe last season Dame uh, was number 11 on a per-game basis. If he's number 11 on a per-game basis and he plays in about 75 games and you drafted him eighth, he's going to be around number eight. By totals last year, because he played in 80 games, he was number five. That's what you're drafting Damian Lillard for in the first round, and he certainly gave us that this year. There's no fight in that number. I want to jump over Hassan Whiteside and talk about C.J. McCollum because these are the stalwarts in Portland. McCollum, 62 of their 65 games. He averaged 22.5 points, four boards, four assists, 0.7 steals, 0.6 blocks, about three three three-pointers a game on 45% from the field and 75% at the free-throw line, which was a little bit weird because, in general, you look for a guy like C.J. McCollum to be, well, a little bit better than that at the foul line. Over his career, he's at 83%. This was his worst free-throw shooting season since his sophomore campaign, where he only played 16 minutes a game and didn't really take any free-throws at that point. So, you look at McCollum. This was his highest number of shots attempted in his career, and some of that was, again, because Portland was down a number of bodies this season. So, he averaged the second-highest scoring for his career. And yet somehow, as we pour through all this stuff, the assists were actually up for McCollum. Rebounding was right around his mark. Uh, defensive stats were down a little, although blocks were a tiny bit higher. So it, it, it added up to a right around the 1.3 combined defensive stats he's been throughout his career. The thing about McCollum that I think we all need to accept at this point is that the year where he shot 48%, that was back in 2016, 2017, was the outlier. At the time... Many of us thought, oh, did he turn a corner? Is this the new C.J. McCollum? But as it turns out, he just had a really good shooting year. That's it. This is who he is. He's a 20-point-per-game score. He's a four-rebound-a-game guy. He's three-and-change assists. He's not a ton of defensive stats. He's two-and-some-odd three-pointers. And this year, he was a slightly better free throw percent away from being about a round earlier, but he's always going to be in that 50 to 70 range with the tiniest bit of chance that he could crawl into the high 40s, but he's never going to be that 20-something guy that he was for one year. It's just not him. But he's awfully safe. If you have a fifth or sixth round pick that's floating around and McCollum is out there, you always know you can take him and you can just plug these numbers, which is like an inefficient version of Clay Thompson, into your lineup. CJ McCollum is absolutely a poor man's Clay Thompson from a fantasy standpoint. Reality standpoint, Clay was always the better defensive player, and McCollum had sort of more features to his game, if you want to call them that. I don't know what the proper term terminology would be on that front. Uh, but the the numbers, just when you're looking at kind of the rough, hey, what is this guy going to do? Clay Thompson, last year, we'll go back a season before uh, his injury in the playoffs. 21.5 points, four boards, 2.5 assists, 1.7 combined defensive uh, stats, three threes, 
47% from the field, 82 at the free throw line. That same year, C.J. McCollum, uh, who was ranked... Where the hell are you, C.J.? we got to go down the charts a little bit to find McCollum. He was at 68, also 21 points, also around four rebounds. I mean, this is crazy, right? They Almost the exact same numbers through those first two things I mentioned, but half a three-pointer less, almost the same number of assists, 1.2 combined defensive stats, 46% from the field, and 82% at the free throw line. That, by the way highlights the difference in what a guy taking 18 shots and two percentage points from the field actually means for his fantasy value. Because that's the big difference there. Uh, Clay, a little bit of an edge. What do you have? He had 1.1 steals Thompson did last year. Uh, And uh, see, McCollum had 0.8. Otherwise, their stats are almost identical. It's mind-boggling. They have the exact same number of turnovers as well, 1.5 per game. But Thompson gets that two-round bump because he's shooting 47% from the field consistently. But if you missed on Clay Thompson in the third round of your draft in years past, not this one, of course, there's McCollum two rounds later doing the same thing, and you just need to make sure you buttress the field goal percent a little bit. All right, those are the easy ones in Portland. Now, what about the other guys out there? Portland lost all sorts of bodies this season to injuries. Zach Collins missed the entire year. Yusuf Nurkic missed the entire year. Or Collins played in three games, I should apologize. Rodney Hood played in 21 games before he went down. We got a lot of things to talk about. First, let's talk about Hassan Whiteside, the beneficiary of all of this stuff. Well, one of them. Carmelo Anthony would be the other. Hassan Whiteside played in 61 games for the Blazers to this point. Averaged 16 points, 14 boards, a NBA high. 3.1 blocks per game, 62% from the field, and 68% at the foul line. That was a number that was a little bit higher about a month and a half before the season ended. He cooled off a bit at the free throw line, and that dropped him from top five to number eight. But overall, the fact that he was a first-rounder this year was an unbelievable get. And I think you could probably argue successfully that he was the best pick in all of fantasy sports. And I admit, I was petrified of Hassan Whiteside because I had him last year, and he shot 45% at the free throw line and tanked a bunch of my teams in the process. The, the thought with him was always, if he could make his free throws, he can rock it back up inside the top 30 because he blocks shots like a maniac. And he did. Getting out from under whatever was going on in Miami with Spolstra, Riley, the rest of the guys on that team, you could see even the day he got moved... What did he, he put out an Instagram or he put out a video on some platform just celebrating being anywhere else. He was so thrilled. But of course, Zach Collins, Yusuf Nurkic will play again at some point. In fact, Collins was supposedly getting close to playing even potentially this year. Nurkic, we kept hearing that he was going to, then not going to. Then, I mean, we never, this is again, another example of not stashing anybody because that stuff is a mess. When those guys come back, we have no idea what's going to happen to Hassan Whiteside. None. It's a it's a total mess. You've got to think that for Portland, Yusuf Nurkic is going to be the guy. He was before. So I don't know why he wouldn't be again. Nurkic was great last season. We'll break his numbers down here momentarily. Hassan Whiteside is a free agent when this season is over, 
Although, again, we haven't quite hit that point. So he could end up any place. One would assume he's probably not going back to Portland because I'm sure he sees the writing on the wall. He'll be effectively the third big man on that team, getting some minutes off the bench. I think he had fun playing on a better team. But his numbers from this year are probably going to get him overdrafted next season. Because you got to assume he's going to try to go to a place that's going to give him starters minutes or something, some reasonable facsimile of that. He was at 31 minutes a game this year. I don't know that you can expect that number to, to be replicated next season, but you can bet he's looking for starting and 25-plus. Oh, a guy to keep an eye on, but I'm guessing his ADP will be a little bit too high. I've never been as high on Zach Collins as the rest of the fantasy community. I just haven't seen nearly enough consistency but, of course, he could end up being a little bit of a post-type guy because everyone was excited about him potentially starting at power forward this year, and then he got hurt for the season and everybody had to drop him. So will people forget about him next year? Maybe. Will the Blazers try to build a roster that makes a little bit more sense? Also, maybe. Meanwhile, if you go back to last year, Yusuf Nurkic was the number 36 player in fantasy, on 15.5 points, 10.5 rebounds, 3 assists, a steal, 1.4 blocks, 51% from the field, and 77 at the free throw line. A stellar campaign before his gruesome injury. I don't think there's any chance he gets back to that mark this soon. Now, one of the things was we were hoping he'd get a chance to play a little bit this year and start to get his legs underneath him, work through the offseason, and then be maybe a little bit closer to what he was by next year. But... This weird stoppage, you just wonder how much time he's going to have to actually get his wind. He's another potential post-type guy. An injury dude you could stash for this entire season, or you know, if you're in a keeper-type format. Or you just hope that he falls a bit in drafts next year. I don't think he's going to fall. I, just, I think people remember the beauty of his season before he got hurt, and it, it makes me think that he's going to end up going a bit on the early side. Carmelo Anthony, doesn't really matter where he is. He's not a nine-category guy. We've been down this road too many times. Rodney Hood, same kind of thing. He just doesn't do enough besides shoot efficiently from the perimeter. There aren't enough opportunities for him with this roster. And then the other note on Portland was a midseason acquisition, and that was Trevor Ariza, who actually became a pretty useful fantasy player with the Blazers. I figured he'd be right around the top 100. He was more like a top 80 guy with Portland. Putting up numbers not that far from what he did with Phoenix. A little bit more opportunity. He was somewhere in that 11, 12 points per game. Couple threes, five boards. Good steals numbers. Not taking a ton of shots, but just being generally useful at a position on the floor that Portland didn't have anyone they wanted to use full time. That... Uh, I'm going to say surprised me. I thought, you know, top 100, I missed by like a round and a half on that one. Regardless, he is actually signed for another year. But now it comes down to how much of his activity was due to Rodney Hood missing the rest of the season. Do you want to deal with rotating those guys in and out when Hood, if Hood comes back? Because Rodney has a player option for next year for about $6 million, and he probably will take it considering, well, considering, I guess we ought to say. Right? Because he's been out 
with an Achilles. So he might come back by the middle of next year. That's a tough one to come back from. If he does, how much are they going to play him? So believe it or not, you might have this weird, like, I'll take him in the 14th round Trevor Ariza thing where you could, the people in your league might assume you're only going to get a month or two out of him, and you might end up getting three or four months out of him if Hood is delayed in his return. Do they throw these other guys into the mix? Guys like Anthony Simons, who did play 65 games in 21 minutes a game. Gary Trent Jr. These guys are more technically guards than forwards. It seems like they like Ariza. Just based on what we've seen so far this season with Portland, they're playing him 30-some-odd minutes a damn game. 35 minutes a game, I think, over the last three weeks prior to the season getting shut down. So we bounced around a little on this Portland roster because there's a lot of things to consider on this Portland roster. The thing is, uh, on a review standpoint, I don't care about Carmelo Anthony, who, by the way, actually had been not terrible over the last three weeks prior to the thing prior to the suspension of the season, but overall, because of his field goal percent leveling off, you know he's going to be a nine-category detriment. Ariza, he's been in. McCollum, Lillard, Whiteside, obviously they've been in as well. The best thing I think we can do with Portland is to try to make some educated guesses about next year. No Whiteside, so Nurkic is going to have a decent role, probably overdrafted. Collins, Still hasn't shown me any consistency, but if he goes in as the starting power forward, you might as well take a flyer on him late. I wouldn't go much earlier than that because he's not a high-usage guy. Ariza actually has an opportunity again as a late-round guy with a little bit of upside on the kind of the 3-and-D department. Probably will... Uh, I mean, you look at his numbers... Usage might not be that far off, actually, from where it was this year because you replace a guy like a Carmelo Anthony and a Whiteside with a Nurkic and Collins. I mean, Whiteside and Melo combining to take about 26 shots a game. I don't I don't see Nurkic and Collins taking more than 26 combined shots next year. So if Ariza is still in that starting slot, he probably can get himself his eight shots a game. The only question on Ariza is, does he age too fast? Do they start to play some of these younger guys a little bit more? I'm inclined to say probably not, because this Portland team is sort of in perma, let's try and squeeze whatever we can out of this mess mode. The other thing with the Blazers, lessons to learn, is that the advantage is to durability. This is a team that has two guys that have shown the value of just playing in some damn games because Damian Lillard number three by totals this season behind Harden and Anthony Davis I mean way behind those guys but number three by totals on the year and then even though McCollum was in the 60s by averages he was number 40 by totals to this point so there are clear clear advantages to taking guys that have over a nice long track record of just playing in most of the games. You don't need to play in all 82, and you don't need to play yourself into an injury, but the advantage to drafting safely in certain spots is really important. Also, don't be enamored, don't become enamored with scoring. Carmelo Anthony giving us another reason not to value points too highly. Don't forget about injured guys and definitely track their ADP. And then old men like Trevor Ariza, still hanging on to value somehow. You know he's going on the Dan Vespers list of guys to keep an eye on for next year, and we'll wait and see what his role will be 
when we get to that point. Questions or comments, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan Bespris. We'll get this podcast posted here in the next couple of minutes after finishing recording. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoopball presentation. We'll continue our tour of the Northwest Division tomorrow. This is your Monday show. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope we gave you a little reprieve. We'll get back at you tomorrow. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.